Hey, everyone. My name is Noelle Herman. I'm one of the pastors here at Vancouver Vineyard. And this morning's teaching text comes from James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. <clears throat> James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you is lacking in wisdom, ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given you. But ask in faith, never doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For the doubter, being double-minded and unstable in every way, must not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Let the believer who is lowly boast in being raised up, and the rich in being brought low, because the rich will disappear like a flower in the field. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the field, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. It is the same way with the rich. In the midst of a busy life, they will wither away. Blessed is anyone who endures temptation. Such a one has stood the test and will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. No one, when tempted, should say, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But one is tempted by one's own desire, being lured and enticed by it. Then when that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and that sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my beloved. Every generous act of giving with every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In fulfillment of his own purpose, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would become a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Amen. Good morning, everybody. How are you guys today? Good, good. It's good to see you all. My name is Marshall. I'm uh, the lead pastor here at the church. And if this is your first time, I want to say welcome. We're really glad you're here. Uh, and we're just going to go ahead and dive in. Uh, this week, as we were reading reports of the threats of this hurricane named Ian, which this year they really picked a sinister name for a hurricane, didn't they? Ian. Just sounds... Sorry if your name's Ian. <laughs> and, and as we were hearing about this hurricane that was approaching Florida, um, I was texting back and forth with my friend Tim, uh, who is a member of our church community who moved with him and his family to Sarasota a couple of months ago. And... Um, and he was sending me sort of pictures and videos of the various stages of the storm approaching his new home. You see, he, he sent his wife and his children uh, down to Miami uh, to, to be safe. And then he hunkered down uh, with the pets. He, if you know Tim, he's like just looking for any opportunity to use camping gear and set up for an adventure. And, uh, and so he, he was ready to ride out the storm uh, and serve his neighborhood. Now, above Tim's home, if we have that video, above Tim's home, there are five large oak trees with thick branches that span across his roof line. And for days, I found myself praying constantly, specifically for these trees. I prayed for strong branches. I prayed for deep, sturdy roots. I prayed for other neighboring trees to obstruct the force of the wind against them. And after a couple of days of sort of tense hourly prayer, Tim texted me back 
that all is well, the storm had passed, that his, he and his home were safe, and, uh, and that he was without power until this morning. He finally got it back. I prayed aggressively for these trees for the last few days because a few years ago, another member of our church uh, who is part of our small group, um, she tragically lost her mom uh, during a storm that hit the Portland area, and a large evergreen tree blew over fell through the roof of her house and crushed her in her sleep. You see, the, the storm it tests the strength of the roots. And it's the resistance of the wind that strengthens a tree's roots over time, over the years as it grows, so that one day it would be able to stand firmly against even hurricane force winds. Now, at the risk of some predictable redundancy, I'm, I'm sure everybody is tired of us sort of like reflecting back over the last few years, but think back again over the last couple of years in America. We faced a series of admittedly small storms, at least compared with the level of suffering experienced throughout most of human history. And our roots were tested, including the American church's root system. And I would contend that during this time of revealing, it showed us that we were not quite as robust as we might have hoped we were. We turned out to be pretty brittle, pretty inflexible, and I would say, frankly, pretty shallow. And yet, Jesus loved us through everything that we have gone through. And I believe that he is inviting us through this last storm into a stronger and more robust discipleship. So today we are starting a new series uh, in the book of James, which was, lit, which was written by one of the earliest leaders in the early church. And it's a letter that famously pulls no punches as, as it instructs the disciples, disciples of Jesus in how to walk out the teachings of Jesus. Isn't that image great? That was done by our friend Sierra. So if you see Sierra, uh, make sure that you thank her for her gift of design work. Now in this book, we are invited to look, to really look at what is at the foundation of our faith through the lens of sort of observing the outcomes of our lives. In this letter, Jesus confronts the way that we think about money and status. He calls us to real sacrificial acts of justice, serving those particularly who are at the bottom of society. He addresses matters of the heart and shows us that what is really in the heart is reflected through our speech and that our speech is something that is the, the last and great thing that we have to learn how to tame. He addresses division in the church that is rooted in pride and self-righteousness. He has very strong words for the rich. And he calls us to believe that God is bigger than our circumstances and more valuable than our comfort. Now, when you hear that we're going to do a series in the book of James, some of you kind of like it takes your breath away because you think to yourself, this is going to be hard and painful. And I don't, I don't think that this sermon series is intended to be a hammer of correction against our humble little community. I think that it's meant to be an invitation to a robust discipleship. And so my prayer for the next couple of months is that we will sink our roots down deep and allow the weight of the words of James of scripture to put the pressure on us so that we can grow and become stronger. Does that sound good? Yeah. So here's, here's an invitation I want to make. 
to each one of us. Over the course of the next couple of months, we're going to be in this book series all the way up through uh, Christmas. Merry Christmas. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I want to encourage each of us to spend uh, the, the week between Sundays reading the book of James. You can read it one time through in just like 15 minutes. It really isn't that hard. But each week, let's take some time and read the letter of James. So let's dive in. The letter of James begins like this in verse 1. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. So James opens his letter with his own name. He says, James, it's the first word of the letter. But here's the problem. The first word already has an issue. Uh, the letter that is named for the guy James turns act out to actually be written by a guy named Jacob. Doesn't that mess with you? Like, immediately, it's James, but his name isn't actually James. See, uh, through a game of kind of uh, translation telephone, we know him as James, but really his Hebrew name is Yaakov, which is Jacob. So throughout the series, you're going to hear me talk about this guy as Jacob, because I think that he deserves to be represented accurately. Say it with me. James is Jacob. Jacob is James. When you hear me say Jacob, think James. When you hear me say James, think Jacob. Is that confusing? Okay. It's going to get worse. All right. Jacob, or James, was a leader in the early church. And more importantly, he was the half-brother of Jesus, born to Mary and Joseph. And just pause for a second and think about what it would have been like to grow up with Jesus. We have no idea if Mary or Joseph told their other kids about angels visiting them, dreams predicting the birth of Jesus, prophecies that were foretelling him as the long-awaited Hebrew Messiah, priests in the temple who prophesied and declared these great things over him. We have no idea if, as they were growing up, they were hearing about their Messiah brother. I would say hopefully not. That seems like a really unhealthy household to be hearing that about your brother over and over again. And so likely they didn't know. They just thought of him that to him, to them, he was just Jesus. In fact, we read in the gospels that on more than one occasion, Jesus' brothers mocked him and thought that he was going crazy. At one point, they tried to persuade him to leave the crowds and to come back home, get back to the family business, leave this life of lunatic ministry behind. And then on another, at another time, they were frustrated with him, and they attempted to goad him into going and showing himself in Jerusalem, which would have likely ended in his imprisonment and death. Jesus' family were the last people you would expect to call him Lord. It's pretty hard to call your brother God, right? Look, I have family members who are a part of this church, and my brothers won't even call me pastor, like ever. I can guarantee that. <laughs> Jesse's confirming it. <laughs> and so what could make Jacob go from being skeptical and even embarrassed about his older brother to go from that to calling him Lord? The answer is really simple. It's the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. After Jesus rose from the dead, we read that he showed himself to various people, to the disciples, to James specifically, or Jacob specifically, and then to a whole bunch of other crowds. And that it was upon Jesus being revealed as the resurrected Lord that completely changed James's outlook. 
And so then he, so he goes from being one of the greatest skeptics of Jesus to becoming one of the leaders of the early church, eventually being beheaded by Herod for preaching that Jesus is the rightful king and Lord. But before the ministry and the movement of the Christian church, we know that life was very difficult for Jacob and the rest of the family. Jesus' family was poor, and they lived in a small peasant town called Nazareth. The boys would have apprenticed under their father, Joseph, as a stonemason, which was hard, low-wage work. And then we know that at some point, Joseph died and left Mary a widow and these kids without a father. We know throughout, uh, through the historical details that there were at least six kids in Jesus' family. Uh, there might have been more. There were four brothers and at least two sisters that we know of. Uh, and they likely would have been dependent on the generosity from the rest of the Jewish community through sort of the calling of the Torah to care for those who were the fatherless, the vulnerable. So Jesus and Jacob, or James, experienced firsthand what it was like to depend on the generosity of others to make ends meet. And I believe that this was actually central to why James, or Jacob, sorry, James, which would you prefer me call him? Is this James? Okay, we'll just do that. It was a good thought. It was well-meaning, right? <laughs> and so I believe that this is at the core of why James put such an emphasis on money and justice in his letter. You see, for James, the truest, truest, truest sign of faithfulness to God is the way that we care for the vulnerable. If the church fails to be generous to those in need, we fail to be the church regardless of what doctrines we profess we believe. And so after Jesus' death and resurrection, James became a central leader in the church in the city of Jerusalem. He was present for all of these amazing moments. We believe that he was present at the day of Pentecost when people were gathered in an upper room waiting for the Holy Spirit to show up. He presided over the Jerusalem council that happened in Acts chapter 15 when the Holy Spirit affirmed the full inclusion of non-Jewish believers as co-recipients of the kingdom of God. And so the letter of James was actually written to Jewish believers in Jesus that were scattered out among the nations. And he wrote this before any of Paul's letters or the Gospels were even written. It's one of the very first New Testament texts. And this is important because the book of James is not written in reaction to Paul's letters or Paul's theology. It isn't in any way in opposition to Paul's emphasis on salvation by grace through faith. You see, throughout much of Christian history, Various traditions and camps, uh, particularly of Protestantism, have struggled with this idea of sort of James versus Paul, particularly guys like uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin really resisted even the inclusion of the book of James in the canon of Scripture. But James is calling God's people to continue to follow God's heart for the poor and those of low estate as we follow Jesus. The book of James, it rhymes with the Old Testament scriptures and their emphasis on faith that is worked out through acts of justice. And this is still on the, the call on the church today. So that, all that was just sort of some background to set the stage for everything that we are going to be studying through the rest of 2022. And admittedly, we are going to move way too fast through this letter. Jesus' brother James calls us to follow our Lord who himself suffered, was poor, and whose eyes were continually on those of the lowest estate as our example of a life of true faithfulness. 
I'm really excited for this letter. We're going to be having a, a range of voices that are going to be sharing from it. We have uh, one person who is going to be new to preaching who is going to be sharing in this series. It's going to be quite a ride, so keep coming back. Now, look with me at verse 2 if you have your Bible open. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. So the book of James, it opens with a splash of cold water to the face. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. The, all of Paul's letters say, consider it pure joy that like God has saved you. Isn't it great new? James opens his letter with consider it pure joy when you face really difficult circumstances, when you are suffering, when you experience all kinds of trials. And this opening is actually kind of reminiscent of the beginning of uh, the most famous sermon by his older brother, Jesus, where Jesus opens the Sermon on the Mount with, blessed are the poor. Joy in the midst of trials and painful circumstances. He opens his letter by hitting the problem head on. And what a shocking statement for us as 21st century Christians. Suffering and pain are frankly the last things that we like to talk about or celebrate. We usually use whatever means we possess that God has given us to avoid suffering or to ease it completely. But for first century Christians, there was no way of avoiding trials. It was actually at the heart of what it meant to, to be a follower of Jesus, this messianic rabbi who literally said that following him would require us to pick up our cross and walk with it every day. Christians in the first century at the time of this writing were persecuted, arrested, and even executed by the cruelest means known at the time. And yet the early church was known for withstanding such persecution without resisting and without resorting to violence. They followed their Lord, not to cultural prominence, but rather to a prison cell or an execution stage. And the credibility that was gained through the suffering of the church, it sparked a movement that spread across the whole world throughout centuries and millennia. And here we are today gathering in a building on a Sunday morning to celebrate this crucified messianic rabbi. Theologian Scott McKnight writes this. He says, the Christian attitude towards trials and suffering is legendary. Perfect quote. And this kind of suffering is still being endured by many Christians today. Followers of Jesus are still being imprisoned, tortured, disowned by unbelieving family members, and martyred. The church in Iran and parts of India, throughout the Middle East and Southeast Asia, is still under intense persecution to this very day. And we need to pray for our brothers and sisters who are enduring it. And though you and I don't face these kinds of trials in our lives and realistically won't in our lifetimes here in the United States, James doesn't limit the trials and suffering that he's writing about to a life of persecution. As James wrote this letter, Jerusalem was also at the time experiencing a great famine. So in addition to all of the persecution, there was a general hardship that was being experienced by everyone in the region. 
So whether you experience the kind of persecution that the early church was or not, even if you don't go to prison or face death for your faith in Jesus, every single one of us will still experience all kinds of suffering in our years on this earth. No one is immune. Sickness and pain, broken relationships, divorce, financial hardship, unemployment, losing a loved one or a child, any of these could happen to any one of us at any moment. We are all only a phone call away for our entire world being undone. So where does the suffering come from? Why is suffering so central to this human life for every single human being that walks the earth? The Greek word that's used in verse 2 for trials is parasmos. And it really does have a really wide range of meanings. Um, every time that I go on vacation, uh, my family, my wife and, and children and myself experience some kind of parasmos. Like it's just a rule of the universe. So much so that it's become a joke among our friends. What is going to go wrong this time? I have a story from every vacation. And so when we were in Central Oregon just a couple of weeks ago uh, for, the end, for our end of summer vacation, uh, everything was awesome. Everything was beautiful. There was no smoke or wildfires or anything. It was fantastic. There was just one small hiccup. We didn't get to sleep at all because our daughter decided that she didn't want to sleep for the entire vacation. She was up all night, every night. So, but we still had tons of fun. Just Carly and I were utterly sleep deprived. And on the last day of our trip, we discovered that the reason was because my daughter had hand, foot, and mouth disease, a problem I never heard of until I became a parent. And by the time that we noticed that she had this, it had already spread to our middle child. So we had a bit of a journey ahead of us. Now, in light of the human experience, that trial was pretty light, right? We were on vacation, and our vacation was spoiled a little bit through sleep deprivation. But it's still a trial. It still contributes to the testing of our faith. It still contributes to the forging of our character. Parasmos, trials, could refer to anything, a range of things that happened to us. It could refer to a sickness or a lost job. It could be physical pain or emotional pain. It could be about being slandered or misrepresented or taking a hit to your rep reputation. And in verse 9, we even read that being rich is itself a parasmos, a trial. James writes, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises and with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away, even while they go about their business. Are you rich? That's actually considered in this book and throughout the rest of the Bible to be another form of suffering pain in this life. Doesn't that sound counterintuitive? Scottish philosopher Alastair McIntyre, he writes that riches from a biblical point of view are an affliction. And as the late American philosopher, the notorious B.I.G. observed, mo money, mo problems. <laughs> I knew you guys would love that. When we go through these trials, we often try to ascribe meaning to what we're experiencing. We comfort each other with pithy sayings like everything happens for a reason. But the truth is that lots of suffering that we experience doesn't happen for a reason. Or the reason is bad or unhelpful or isn't really for our own good. 
suffering in this world, it happens because of evil and chaos. Some of the evil is due to malevolent spiritual forces that seek to harm us, what the Bible calls principalities or demons, and that is totally real. Lots of suffering comes from chaos and is totally meaningless, like a tree falling through a house or a random horrible diagnosis that takes somebody that we love. But most suffering comes as a consequence of human sin. Like, if you throw a rock in a pond, the ripples go out from the space where the rock hits the water and creates choppiness beyond just itself. But if you throw billions and billions of rocks in a pond, in the pond of human experience, the sheer amount of human sin throughout history makes the pond a roiling, choppy mess. And this is why there is so much suffering in the world. There is chaos, there are malevolent spiritual forces, but there are billions and billions of people throughout all of human history who have made choice after choice to, do, to choose their own good or their own way, and it's created conditions in our world where things are unstable and messy and broken. But the one person that we can't blame for all of this suffering and evil is God. Verse 13 says, when tempted... No one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. God is not the author of evil. That is actually what we call a heresy. Evil exists because true love requires the freedom to choose the other. And humans have chosen themselves over God. And this sin of choosing ourselves has resulted in what Cornelius Plantinga describes as the vandalism of shalom, something that we explored in depth during the course of Lent earlier this year. God is not the cause of suffering. But only God can redeem our suffering. Only God can take the real trials that all of us face and turn it into something good. And that is the entire story of the Bible. In fact, in Genesis chapter 50, we read about a guy named Joseph who is talking with his brothers after they had committed all kinds of horrific sin against him, seeking his destruction and death. And Joseph says this, about God. It's like a thesis statement for the entire Bible. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God worked it together for good. God meant you, you tried to destroy my life and God used your evil to be able to save thousands of lives. God wastes nothing. And he especially doesn't waste the moments of our deepest pain and therefore, only God can bring us through suffering to maturity and completeness. So the, what we see here in James chapter 1 is that the call is not for us to merely endure difficulty in this life, but to somehow actually find joy in the midst of it. But how? How in the world can we take that seriously? For most of us, this sounds like a benign saying that's printed on a bath towel or next to a sign that says, live, laugh, love. 
This does not mean that we should be experiencing euphoric, joyful emotions in the face of tragedy or else you're doing it wrong. He's not calling us to enjoy our pain. Nor is he saying that when you experience hardship, you should just put on a happy face, fake good feelings when life sucks. Because both of these experiences are frankly toxic. Or sorry, both of these expectations are frankly toxic. The lie that we should expect to feel good in the midst of pain or else we aren't doing it right, it puts a false burden on us that causes us to fake it or to despair because we're just not feeling it. And the heart of James mirrors that of the heart of his brother Jesus, who said, happy or blessed are the poor, the persecuted, the meek, the hungry, and so on, because the kingdom of God is available and accessible to you no matter what you're experiencing. Our pure joy in the face of trials is rooted in this, and it's twofold. First, we can have joy because we can have confidence in, uh, because of the confidence that we have in the gospel. No matter what we face, God's presence and salvation is guaranteed in the cross of Jesus Christ. There is no trial that we can experience that has the power to cut us off from God. If you have a Bible, open it to Romans chapter 8, because I think that it's really important that we actually see these words, not just on a screen, but on a page. If you have your Bible, Romans chapter 8. And here's what we read about halfway through. Paul writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Skip a couple verses. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Verse 31, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or even the sword? Verse 38, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. And so what Paul is pointing us to here in Romans chapter 8 is that our sufferings, they are pointing us to the constant groan that exists in all of creation for God to come and finish his work. That what Jesus began at the cross and confirmed through the resurrection, 
that we who were alienated from God because of our sin by choosing ourselves over choosing God can be reconciled through the blood of Jesus on the cross, but we wait for something that is more complete, which is the eventual restoring of shalom, completeness, wholeness to creation. He says, we may have experienced redemption in our souls. We are still waiting for that redemption in our bodies. And our suffering is a reminder that things are not as they are meant to be. That the shalom of God's creation has been vandalized by sin, even by our own sin. And even as we suffer, we are promised that one day we will be made new. And secondly... We can have pure joy in suffering because our suffering gives us an opportunity to grow. The testing of our faith produces perseverance. Suffering has the power to bring resilience. It's like the way that you strengthen or harden steel by tempering it through forging it in fire and hammering it until it is sharp and strong. And this perseverance, it leads us into what he calls maturity or completeness. And this is what we talk about, what we are talking about when we talk about robust discipleship. This is essentially the thesis for the book of James. Maturity and completeness, lacking nothing. You see, the goal of the Christian life isn't for some feeling of fulfillment, It's not for self-actualization. It isn't for physical or a material blessing. The aim of our discipleship is this. It is maturity. It is Christ-likeness. It is to become the kind of people who experience the blessing of relationship with God in all circumstances. Now, In our modern era, we run from suffering. We hide from it. We anesthetize ourselves and we cope in a million different ways when we feel discomfort. When we feel crappy, we run to anything to make us feel good. Whether it's sugar, (laughs) this guy, it's a hard day, stop and get a Ben and Jerry's. Hence, and... um, (laughs) Or hobbies, or alcohol, or trashy reality TV, or social media, or rage-inducing news media, or a thousand other, other coping strategies, other comforts that we go to. We spend thousands and thousands of dollars avoiding or mitigating our pain, doing whatever it takes to not feel it. And this works against our growth as image bearers of God. You see, when somebody has leprosy, uh, a disease that you read about a lot in the Bible, they, they lose their nerve sensitivity and they can't feel the pain of normal life stuff. So they end up with all kinds of injuries and wounds. They lose their fingers and, and even their limbs. They don't feel the pain of a hot stove when they burn themselves and they end up with severe burns on their body. They don't feel the pain of a deep cut or a gash that becomes infected and causes more damage in their body. You see, the inability to feel pain is not a superpower. It's actually a liability. And so by living in perpetual numbness as Americans, many of us ignore the warning signs of pain for years and years and years as our lives begin to rot away. We ignore the pain of the relationships that fall apart because we don't 
need to really feel that when we can just sort of check out on our devices. We ignore the pain and our health gets worse as we just keep going to that Ben and Jerry's or alcohol or whatever it is that is your thing. We ignore the pain and we begin to drift away from God himself and wonder why we may not feel total despair, we feel nothing at all. Numbing wastes the gift of suffering because we don't come through the other side to maturity and completeness. We end up coming through shallow and even more broken. And it shows the lack of wisdom to walk through trouble well. In James chapter 1, verse 5, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. This is in the context of enduring suffering. He's saying if you need wisdom for how to endure well, ask God. Don't run away from it. We need wisdom for how we can walk through this. Coming through the other side to completeness and maturity. Coming through, walking closer to Jesus. And wisdom here in this text is heavenly perspective. It's seeing things through the eyes of eternity. Now, if James was writing to a modern audience, we would expect him to say something like offering techniques or hacks uh, rather than a, a heavenly perspective. Today's wisdom is based on tips for getting around suffering or hacks for becoming more efficient in trials, life curation that erases all of the unsightly bits and biases and problems, uh, you know, just put a filter on it. But here's what C.S. Lewis says in The Abolition of Man. He writes, for the wise men of old, the cardinal problem had been how to conform the soul to reality, and the solution had been knowledge, self-discipline, and virtue. For the modern, the cardinal problem is how to conform reality to the wishes of man. And the solution is technique. In our time, the ultimate goal for most people is to conform their reality to their desires and comfort. To avoid pain and to maximize pleasure. And this is an empty pursuit but the invitation from Jesus and his brother James is to learn to conform ourselves to objective reality and to stand strong even in the face of life's inevitable suffering. It's an invitation to robust discipleship. It's an invitation to be a tree with roots that are sunk down so deep that when hurricane force winds come at you, you stand firm and strong even through it. In the 90s, the University of Arizona did an experiment where they built the Biosphere 2, which was an enclosed miniature version of our planet. And it was totally sealed off from any contaminants of the real world with the exception of Polly Shore and Stephen Baldwin. That's a 1996 biodome joke. That's like for a couple of us. It was created to study the planet's sort of systems and how they all work together. But not long into the experiment, trees started to fall over and collapse. And scientists couldn't figure out why the trees weren't thriving. They had plenty of light. They had fantastic soil. The conditions were perfect. And then they realized that the problem was that there was no wind in the biosphere. And without the wind for the trees to struggle against, the root system was weak and the trees would topple over. We want to be trees that can withstand some, some harder times. We want to be flexible and not brittle. If we could do 2020 and 2021 over again, we want to do it better. 
And so the question for us is not how can we avoid suffering in the future? Trials are inevitable. The question is, what will we do with our suffering? Will we hide ourselves from it? Will we numb ourselves and sleepwalk through it? Or will we count it all joy, trusting God to walk us through all the way to maturity? Will we have the wisdom to conform ourselves to Jesus, who walked through every kind of trial and pain and did so, as the writer of Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him, enduring the cross and scorning its shame. James writes, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Amen.